We began last week our study in this prayer, verses 7 through 10, and we noted within the broader context of the sermon, it does sit at the center of the center of the center. That's not accidental. It's not incidental. The Lord's Prayer is the nucleus of the greatest sermon ever preached. It is to guide not only our prayer life, it's supposed to inform the way in which we pray, it is also supposed to inform the way in which we think and the way in which we live. The priorities that Jesus gives here and the theology that he instructs us with here ought to go far beyond merely our prayer life, but guide each and every day. It does fit accord with the rest of the sermon. It doesn't sit at odds with anything else Jesus is saying here. It fits exactly with the rest of the sermon. He teaches in the Sermon on the Mount what it is to be a disciple, what it should look like to follow after him. He teaches in the sermon how it is we are to flourish those two things being exactly the same, and the prayer that he gives us here accords with those goals. Now, I noted last week that perhaps the most important note within this unit is the introductory comment. If you miss this, you'll miss the prayer. You won't understand properly the prayer. If you pay attention to the introductory comment, it will give you, open up to you, everything else that Jesus says in the following verses. The introductory comment, do not pray like the Gentiles. The most important thing Jesus says in this unit, don't pray like the Gentiles. How do the Gentiles pray? The Gentiles heap up their many words. Again, it's not a prohibition against long prayers. God is okay with long prayers. The Gentiles heap up many words because they have absolutely no guarantee that their God will hear them. The reason they heap up their many words is in an effort to win the favor of their God. 1 Kings 18 is the biblical example of this very principle. The prophets of Baal praying over and over again, working themselves into a frenzy, even, as the text tells us, cutting themselves with swords. Why? So as to offer a satisfactory petition. They have absolutely no guarantee that their God will hear them, far less be benevolent toward them. They have no assurance of their prayers being heard or answered. By contrast, verse 8, don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. So the theological frame of the Lord's Prayer is the doctrine of adoption. The theological frame of the Lord's Prayer is that God has brought you into his family. He is now to you a father, a loving heavenly father who knows you. Again, as we noted last week, it's not that the Gentiles don't know their God. They know the name of the God to whom they pray. The point is, they have no understanding of whether their God knows them. Jesus says, your Father knows you. He loves you. He cares for you and desires that you would come to him in prayer. It honors God. For you to approach him, to seek his faith, face, and to ask of him. Jesus is teaching here in this introductory comment, by inference, what is made so plain to us elsewhere in the New Testament, especially in the epistles, 
Romans chapter 8, just one example. We read a portion of it last week, so rich in the doctrine of adoption. And Paul writes there, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all. He didn't spare his own son, but he gave him for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's the same principle within that doctrine of adoption. Paul says, look at the cross. You see at the cross God's love for you. He didn't spare his own son, but he gave him for us. If that is true, how will he not also give us all things? If you can see that God was willing to send his son to the cross, how will he not also be favorably disposed towards you as a loving father in heaven? That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples here. Therefore, pray. You don't need to heap up many, many empty words. Just approach a loving heavenly father. If you believe that, and it's a daily choice, you have to daily choose to believe that God did not spare his own son, and therefore, based on that historical reality with all that it infers, he will, how will he not also graciously give me all things? I will choose to believe that truth this day. If you believe it, it will shape your entire life. It is so fascinating and yet so sad at the same time how prone Christians are to live with a belief embedded somewhere in their hearts that God is against them. That God is not for me and in many different ways I somehow have to earn his favor every day before I can ask for anything. I have to earn his favor based on my works before I can expect a blessing. We are prone to return to that kind of thinking on a daily basis. Why is it Christians don't pray more? Why are Christians so seldom found in prayer? You understand it really has Nothing to do with the busyness of your schedule. It's not a busy schedule that keeps you from prayer because you will do what you want to do. You will always do that which you consider to be valuable. You will make time for that which you treasure. The prayerlessness of your weekly routine has got nothing to do with your calendar. It has a lot to do with the insufficiency of your understanding of God's love for you. You don't understand the enormity of God's love for you given freely through Christ. And that keeps you from prayer. And so this opening comment is so foundational to understanding everything else Jesus has to instruct concerning prayer. And the the implication that comes from it as we rehearsed last week is that we would strive by God's grace on a daily basis to better hold on to the truth of our sonship. It is our adoption that should be our foremost thought as a Christian. Again, J.I. Packer in that wonderful chapter in his book, Knowing God, on adoption says rightly, your understanding of the Christian faith will never be higher than your understanding of adoption. It ought to be our controlling thought. And when it is, where else would you want to be but in prayer, seeking the face of your Father in heaven? Now, with that foundational comment, Jesus then gives some priorities. 
You have a Father in heaven. Here's the priorities that should guide not just your prayers, but your thoughts and your life. And the priorities won't make any sense until you've grasped the love that your Father in heaven has for you. I don't imagine these priorities will be yours until you have grasped hold of the truth that God is for you, he is not against you, he loves you as a father. When you do, very readily thereafter, you pray, God, I want to honor you today. Hallowed be your name. I want for you to be honored in my life. Hallowed be your name. When you grasp the truth of a loving heavenly father, it is not difficult to say, God, your kingdom come. Even in light of the many, many good things I have now, I desire more than that, that your kingdom will come. When you grasp the truth of your father in heaven being for you, as made so plain and manifest through the death of his son on the cross, it's not hard to say, God, your will be done. Whatever that means for my life, understanding it may mean great hardship and trial, even persecution, as our Lord Jesus taught earlier in this sermon, your will be done. And I'll be content with that because I know I have a Father in heaven who loves me. You see how the whole prayer works together and springboards off of that introductory comment. I've been praying this prayer, especially this week, more so than I usually do because my mind has been so much in it and thinking about the next few verses. And I love it. I've been praying this prayer for me, and I've been praying this prayer for you. And if it hasn't already become a guiding framework for your prayer life, I would encourage you to begin today. Pray the Lord's Prayer. I want for it to be a theological grid by which you live and think, and by which this church lives and thinks. May God grant that to us. But there are still more priorities for us to think through. We only covered half of them last Sunday. So this morning, we'll work through verses 11 through to 15, noting three more priorities that Jesus gives to us that ought to guide our prayers and our thoughts and our lives and then give attention to the concluding remark that he gives in those last few verses. The first priority that we note today, verse 11, is a prayer for daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. There's a clear shift at this point in the prayer. That's why I divided it where I did. The first half, you might say, are vertical petitions, petitions that are oriented vertically. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And then you get to verse 11 and it shifts, still praying to our Father in heaven, but now concerned with things immediately before us, not least our daily bread. I think the order is important. We pray, first and foremost, your will be done, your name be honored in my life, your kingdom come, that's priority. After that, we think about our daily bread. The order is important, but so also is it significant that we do pray for these things. There's some debate over that one word, daily. It only occurs here in the New Testament and in Luke 11 which is Luke's recording of the Lord's Prayer. So that one word is very unique, exceptional. It only occurs in the context of the Lord's Prayer as recorded in Matthew and Luke, which means it's difficult to understand exactly its meaning. We don't have other contexts 
who would help us further understand that word. And the debate is whether it means daily or tomorrow. Is Jesus saying, ask for your bread today or ask for tomorrow's bread? It's fascinating, isn't it? The solution is that it means both, depending on when you pray. If you pray this prayer in the morning, the word means provide my bread needed for today. If you pray in the evening, it means provide my bread that I will need for tomorrow. And the point is, Jesus wants his disciples to exercise a moment-by-moment, step-by-step dependence upon our loving Heavenly Father. That's the principle. Give to me the thing needed for the next step. Give to me the next bread is what he's teaching us to ask for. And you see that ever so plainly when you consider what he's already said in verse 8 of the text. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. He already knows what we need. And yet Jesus says, ask him. Because he wants for us to articulate our utter dependence upon God. Our day-by-day dependence. It is the same dependence that God sought to cultivate within the hearts of his people in the Old Testament as we read this morning in Exodus 16. You ever consider why God provided the way that he did in the wilderness? He could have sustained his people any way that he chose, his supplies for the next year, his supplies for many years to come. That's not what he did. He said, every day I will feed you, but no more than that. And if you gather for more than that, it will be rotten. It won't feed you. Why? Because I want you to depend on me. I want you to know and to recognize on a daily basis that I am your provider. So all I will give you is one day's food at a time. Now you think about that in our context and perhaps you're saying, well, is it wrong for me to save, even to have more food in my cupboards than one day's worth? It's not That's not the point of the text, but you do understand there is a way of saving that still articulates a daily dependence upon God. There's a way of saving that acknowledges all of this comes from God. He has power over it. He can, according to his will, take it away. I depend utterly on my Father in heaven. Equally, there is a way of saving and storing up that does not acknowledge from whom it has come. There is a way of saving that greatly dishonors God. And perhaps this prayer, this cultivation of dependence on God is harder for us for that very reason. Maybe. In Jesus' day, it would have to feed a family involved a daily trip to the marketplace. No refrigerators, no freezers, no complex supply chains, no Costco membership, none of it. Daily, Where's our food coming from today? And so Jesus teaches them in a way that I think would have rung true with their experience. We, by contrast, need to be extra diligent to ensure that everything we see around us, all of the provisions that God has blessed us with, we acknowledge come from him and that we are utterly dependent upon him. This is why it is a good thing for you to pause before your meal and give thanks. It's the standard thing Christians do, and we can very easily go through the motions, not really thinking what this prayer is. It ought to be a prayer where you say, God, I am not taking this for granted. I recognize this is from you, and you did not have to give it. Praise be to God. It doesn't need to be restricted to your mealtimes. You buy your groceries, it goes through the checkout. Praise God. 
He has, by his goodness, decided to fill my cupboards for another week. I acknowledge my dependence upon you. And on the front end, plead and ask him as a loving heavenly father, give to me what is needed for this day. Provide for me this week, this month, this year. This ought to be a priority for the disciple of the Lord Jesus. I try to pray with Laura every morning before I leave the home. We pray in the mornings. And then we come together and we pray before the day ends in the evenings, and they're very, very different prayers. In the evenings, there's so much to pray about. The days happen, so many needs have been set before us. We feel in so many ways the pain of life in a broken world, on behalf of others, on our behalf, there's so much to bring before the Lord as the day ends. By contrast, the morning prayer is so simple. And it doesn't change. I pray virtually the same prayer every morning. And I'm absolutely okay with that. I pray, God, Keep us from sin today. Keep our hearts back from sin today. I pray, God, keep us safe. Protect us physically today. And I pray, God, provide for us this day. Now I can see the food in the cupboards. I know what we have planned to eat that evening. It's right there. But I do not think it is a contradiction at the same moment to pray, provide for us. Give to us this day what is needed. I want to cultivate a deep sense of dependence in our hearts on our Heavenly Father from whom all good and perfect gifts come. We need to ask. And our dependence is expressed not with a spirit of anxiety. You don't pray these prayers anxious, fearful, of what may come and what may not come, you pray out of faith. It's a contented prayer that Jesus designs for us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, not out of anxiety, but out of faith. What's the difference? The difference is an acknowledgement that you are praying to a loving heavenly Father. That's the theological frame of the whole prayer. Keep going back to that introductory comment. How can we not be anxious when we acknowledge and confess our dependence upon God and it is within his wisdom and will to give to us what he designs? How can I keep my heart back from anxiety because I know that God is for me and not against me? He loves me as a son he gave his son as evidence of his love for me. It affected my salvation and my adoption. And on that theological grounds, give to me today what I need. If we don't pray this prayer, we'll dishonor God. If we don't pray this prayer, we may very well lack. You do not have because you do not ask. If you don't pray this prayer, you will have in your heart an attitude of self-sufficiency born out of pride. Jesus teaches that his disciples, as a matter of priority, 
should confess to their father their dependence upon him. Secondly, he says, you should pray that God would forgive your debts. The word there, debts, infers our sins, our transgressions. Jesus uses a legal context, a legal language, but it could easily have been give, forgive us our sins, which I take to mean Jesus is instructing us to seek what I call relational forgiveness. What I mean by that is Jesus is not here speaking about the forgiveness associated with justification. There is a forgiveness that is anchored and constituent part of the doctrine of justification. When the sinner moves into the domain of eternal life, of union with Christ, what is it that moves him from one to the other? It is that doctrine of justification. And the Bible teaches we avail ourselves of that doctrine by faith, a composite part of which is a repentance of our sins. You pray as a sinner, God, forgive me. And he gladly does. To all who pray, God, forgive me, he does forgive your sins based on the blood of Christ. That's forgiveness associated with justification. Now, that doctrine of justification also teaches that at that moment, all of your sins have been finally, absolutely dealt with. Past, present, and future, God has dealt with them at the cross of his Son. So you don't need to keep coming to keep seeking to be justified. You are justified. You're forgiven. Those sins will not stand on the last day. There is a relational forgiveness that is distinct from that moment of justification. You then enter into your Christian life, and until Christ returns or you go home, you will be on the road of sanctification. And as you know, we sin daily. Not one of us lives a perfect life. We consistently fail our Father who is in heaven, and it is appropriate that when we do, we confess our sins and seek his relational forgiveness. We know this principle through our earthly relationships, especially in the context of parenting. If one of my children were to disobey me, if they wrong their father through disobedience, their status as a child of mine is never in question. They've wronged me. They've sinned against me. Their status as part of this family is never in question. They do not need to come and seek my forgiveness to make sure that they stay as part of the family. But it is entirely appropriate that they come and seek my forgiveness because our relationship has been impaired. Our relationship has been hindered by their sin. And for the sake of relational health, they need to ask for forgiveness. It's the same as Jesus teaches here, having spoken to his disciples as children of God, that is already in place, you are justified before him, you also now need to keep coming for relational forgiveness. Indeed, it needs to be a matter of priority. On a daily basis, bring your sins before God, that your relationship may be strong and healthy. Now, one of the implications that flows out of this priority very simply stated is that God cares about the health of your relationship with him. Just think about that for a minute. God cares certainly that you are justified. He desires that all would repent, all would put faith in Christ. He cares that you are justified, 
but he doesn't stop caring after you have been justified. God cares about the strength, the health of your relationship with him. When you don't confess sin, it grieves him. When you don't avail yourself of opportunities to commune with your Father who is in heaven, it grieves him. When you don't choose to seek him out through his word, that saddens your Father in heaven. When you forego time in prayer, seeking to commune with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that grieves him. And when you don't come to assemble with the saints and worship together, it grieves him. It is a fleeting decision for you. I haven't time to read my Bible today. It's okay. It's a fleeting decision to say, you know what? I haven't been in prayer for some time, but it's okay. I'm busy. God knows I love him. It's a fleeting decision to say, I won't come back out to church and be with the saints. But God is grieved every time because you are not choosing to seek him. And perhaps one of the realities that is foremost in keeping you back from seeking him is unconfessed sin. When you are not readily confessing your sin, that will stop you from seeking his face. So how do we develop such an attitude in our heart that readily brings to the Lord our many failings? How can this become a priority of ours in our daily lives? We understand and bring to mind our status as children. I think this is implied in the next line that Jesus gives. He says, forgive us our debts, verse 12, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, this is a tricky verse because some have construed it to, to give a sense of contingency. God will forgive me my sins when I have forgiven others. Now, it's conditional. God accepts me only when I have done right by others. That small word as is not intended to lay out a sequence of actions and even the tenses of the verbs that Jesus uses within this one verse show us it's not a sequential line of thinking. As I do right, now I can have access to God. That's not what Jesus is teaching. He's portraying a way of life. The disciples, as a way of life, are those who are forgiving others. As a way of life, they are bringing their sins before God and receiving forgiveness. So who is it then that readily forgives others? Who are the people that don't begrudge others when they are wronged, but freely issue forgiveness on a horizontal level, who is it but the children of God? This is what Jesus has already taught earlier in the sermon concerning our worship. This is what it is to be a disciple elsewhere in the epistles. Paul teaches what defines the children of God, their readiness to forgive others. You see, Jesus could have told us this reality with a whole number of attributes of the children of God, but he goes after forgiveness because he gets right at the heart of who you are. As a child of God, you are one who has been forgiven. And that quickly transfers to a readiness now to forgive others. The concept of forgiveness sits right at the center of our relationship with God and our relationship with others. So how do you cultivate that sense, that desire, that priority to keep bringing your sins before God to restore relational health? You saturate your minds in the truth that you have been forgiven. You are a child of God. And you walk daily according to the responsibilities that he places upon you.
we forgive others. And we know that our Father forgives us. This is taught by Jesus later on in this gospel, in Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And you'll remember in that parable, the Lord, the master, forgives a servant of his a debt that he could never have paid. That servant then goes out, meets another servant who owed him a much smaller amount, refused to forgive. And again, the order of that parable is important. He first received a great forgiveness. He then was not willing to forgive. That is not what it looks like to be a child of God. If you cannot forgive others, if you bear grudges, it may be that you have not received that forgiveness from your Father, from the Father in heaven. But in so much as you have and you do, then a priority in your life readily becomes one where you every day come before God and freely, without hesitation, confess your many sins. Third priority in this half of the prayer is that God would not lead us into temptation. Again, there are interpretive, thorny issues here. Would God, a loving Heavenly Father, ever lead a child of His into temptation? The answer is no. Temptation being a, a situation that we would not bear up under and fail and so dishonor Him, he would, by contrast, lead his children so as to test them. And interestingly, it's the same word. In the original, test and temptation is the same word. God would test his children. He does test his children. Exodus 16, we read it this morning. He led his children into the wilderness and he provided in the means that he provided so as to test them to see what's in their heart, to refine them. God does test his children, but he never leads you into sin. He never leads you in such a way that you sin because of what he did. And we see the, the complementary thought. We see how Jesus fleshes that out with the second line. Don't lead me into a scenario where I will fail you. Indeed, second line, deliver me from the evil one. From the evil, the hand of the evil one. Keep me back from his victory over me. And so the, the prayer that Jesus teaches here is not that we wouldn't experience hardship. It's not a prayer that we would have a comfortable life for the sake of being comfortable. But God, according to your wisdom, so ordain my circumstances that you would not be leading me into situations where your name would be dishonored. You see how the prayer so wonderfully structured now mirrors the opening request. Hallowed be your name is the leading priority. I want for your name to be honored in my life. And the closing petition is the everyday articulation of that same desire. Don't lead me into a context where I will fail you. You know my heart better than I do. Don't allow me today to move one foot after the other towards a situation where your name will not be honored. Now, this is harder to pray than you think. We heard this morning from Proverbs 30. It is one of my favorite prayers in the Bible. The prayer of Agur says, God, two things I request from you. Deny them not from me before I die. Number one, keep me from deceit. Don't allow me to become a liar because your name will be dishonored. Prayer number two, do not give to me either riches or poverty. 
I will never be rich because I've prayed that prayer so many times. (laughs) Do not give to me riches or poverty. Why does he pray that? It is not that he's asking for that because he understands it is difficult to manage either. He's not praying that to say, God, I don't want to be uncomfortable by virtue of poverty. And I don't want to be uncomfortable by having too much stuff that I then have to manage. I just want a comfortable life. That's not the intention. He gives in the next verse the theological grounds that give rise to that prayer. I do not want to have so much that I forget you. I don't acknowledge you. And I don't want to have so little that now I steal and defame your name in a different way. I want for your name to be honored, so lead me in a path where I will not sin against you. It is the same sentiment in Proverbs 30 as it is in Matthew 6. And so when you really wrestle with what it looks like to pray this prayer, you understand it is a difficult prayer to pray. You have to be ready for the consequences. God is listening and he is pleased to answer your prayers and you pray, lead me not into temptation. Get ready to learn contentment. He will give you exactly what is needed. He will not give to you that which will cause you to sin. You pray this prayer and he will keep from you many things. It may well be that your lot in life is exactly what it is because God knows you couldn't handle a different lot. Your lot in life is not the same as the circumstances and the lot of your neighbor. And that's God's wisdom to you. He wants... Jesus wants for us to prioritize a desire, a request in prayer that we wouldn't sin. Thus, God, don't lead me into temptation. Keep me from the evil one. How could you learn such contentment? How could you have such a desire but to say, I already have the love my Father in heaven. I don't need anything else. That's how you can pray this prayer and for it to be a genuine priority in your heart. He who did not spare his own son for us all, but gave him for us, how will he not also graciously with him give us all things? I have learned that verse in my heart. I have the love of the Father, so I'll be content. Now lead me not into temptation. Now Jesus has a concluding remark. He ends the section with a concluding remark, returning to the thought given in verse 12. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Verse 14, concluding remark, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly or your Father forgive your trespasses. It's a very strange way to end. It shows us, in part, how important the priority of verse 12 ought to be that he would return to it in the concluding section, go back to the theme of forgiveness. Again, we must not understand these verses as laying out some kind of merit-based relationship before God. Understand there is much that the Bible has to say on the issue of forgiveness. We cannot form our entire theology of forgiveness based on these two verses. There's more to be said. The abruptness of these verses, the abrupt nature with which Jesus lays them forth, and they're difficult to reconcile intentionally 
is there for a reason, not least to cause us to sit up and pay attention again to the theological foundation from which this whole prayer works. Notice the four at the beginning of the verse. Don't pass over that. Jesus says, here's how you pray. He gives six priorities. These should be your priorities. And then he says, concluding remark, four. Because the reason you can pray this prayer is because of this dynamic of forgiveness. The four is so instructive because it shows us, again, the dynamic of forgiveness only exists within a broader theological context. The only way we can make sense of a forgiving and a readiness to forgive is by appealing to the work of God's grace in our hearts. If we don't pay attention to the broader context, these verses will kill you. There will be such a burden upon you that you will start to believe that you have to earn God's favor like the Gentiles do. But the broader context of the gospel, the whole Bible, is that the forgiving ones are those who have been forgiven all as a work of God's grace. Or I might put it like this, as Jesus began the prayer by invoking the truth of our God being our Father, so he ends the prayer by invoking the truth of us being his children. It's an appropriate bookend that mirrors the opening thought, you pray to a father in heaven as a child of his. That's how the prayer begins and ends. We could also observe how throughout church history, the saints have added onto the end of verse 13 a doxology I never memorized 14 and 15 but I do have another sentence memorized that is not scripture it's absolutely fine and appropriate growing up I attended a church of England school there was not much Christianity in it but that's where I learned the Lord's Prayer and I remember so vividly as I'm sure you do, when you memorize this text, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. It's not what Jesus said. It was added throughout church history. It's absolutely fine and appropriate to pray that. I think in a wonderful, coincidental way, that doxology is in essence exactly what is communicated through verses 14 and 15. My paraphrase of 14 and 15 is you're a child of God. You pray this because you're a child of God. The child of God is one who forgives because he has been forgiven. The child of God is also one who desires that the power and the glory would be attributed to God forever and ever. May God establish this prayer in our hearts and in our lives. Let's ask him for that now. Father, we give you thanks for this text spoken by your son to his disciples. It comes to us today as instructions for us, not only in our prayer life, in our thought life, in our lives, these are priorities that are designed to guide our every step. The opening thought, the opening message is so important. You are a Father in heaven who loves us. We come to you on that basis. You gave your Son for us. We see your love at the cross. We behold your Son on the cross. There's your love for us. We believe upon the truth of our adoption. And we come to you through that belief, that truth. Teach us to grasp even more 
the glory of our sonship. And with that reality embedded in our hearts, lead us in these priorities. Would your name be hallowed in our lives? Individually, as a church, would your name be honored in our lives? Bring your kingdom. Keep us from a love of this world. Give us a deep desire to see your kingdom come. Establish your plans. Would your will be done? You're sovereign, you're gracious, you're good, you love us. Our wisdom is not your wisdom. We can't fathom your plans, but we choose this day to delight in your will. Keep us from resisting. Teach us contentment. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, would you provide for us? We depend utterly on you. Our strength is nothing. Would you provide for us our needs and teach us to acknowledge your provision? Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our manifold sins and our wickedness. Teach us to confess our sins to you daily. We praise you for the cross that has dealt with them finally, absolutely, past, present, future. Oh, Father, teach us to value our relationship with you. And to know and to see how sin affects that relationship. As children of God, as those who forgive others, forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. You know our hearts. Keep us back from situations where we will not flourish, we will not succeed, but we will fail you. Keep our feet back from those situations. Father, we trust you. We are your children, and you are a loving Heavenly Father. May this prayer guide us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.